Well, good morning to everybody again. If this is your first week here, welcome to you. Uh, You're jumping into uh, the second week of a series called The Father's Heart. The Father's Heart. And what this series is uh, all about is, you know, it kind of was birthed out of the idea. It's February. It's the season of love. I guess. That's what they tell us anyway. It's a Hallmark holiday. Unless you're married. And then, guys, you're not throwing me under the bus this week. Uh, Pastor said it's a Hallmark holiday. We don't have to celebrate it. Good luck. No. Really, you know, I wanted to take, a t- I wanted to take some time, though, during the month of February and just really look at the Father's heart, God the Father's heart. And I understand, as I said last week, that this may be a tough thing for some of us in the, in the room because maybe the idea of the Father's heart may, may kind of hurt a little bit, may sting a little bit because we, maybe we didn't have uh, fathers on earth that were, that were good fathers, that to talk about their heart, their heart of love toward us may actually bring some pain up. And, and I want to recognize that, but I also want to say that the purpose of this entire series is really to point to the heavenly, our Heavenly Father whose heart and His love towards us is always perfect and is always true and all, is always gracious towards us. And we want to look at His heart and really see, I believe we see not only what He's asking of us, but we really see who He is. And one of the ways that we do that is maybe seems strange to you, but it's through these 12 books. Now, we're not going to talk about all 12, but through these 12 books that end the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. Now, the Minor Prophets aren't called the Minor Prophets because they're not any good. You know, like there's the Major Leagues and the Minor Leagues. They're called the Minor Prophets because they're shorter. But in those, we mostly see the minor prophets as these books of judgment where God is kind of bringing judgment or uh, bringing a message of judgment to the people of Israel. And that's true. But the judgment that he brings and what he says during these, during these books, in these prophecies that are brought through these prophets, is actually judgment that reveals what his heart is, what he really cares about, what he really cares about for us, and what he's calling us to live into. And I think that's a really important thing that doesn't change even this side of the Old Testament and the New Covenant. So we're looking at the Father's heart through these, and today we're going to be in the book of Amos the book of Amos. But before we do that, let's pray together this morning. Once again, Heavenly Father, I just, I recognize in a room, this room right now, that we're coming into this message all from different places today. Some of us have have had tough weeks. Some of us have had tough mornings and we're distracted. Some of us have had a great week. And uh, we're here to worship you and to celebrate what you've been doing in our lives. Um, Some of us are struggling this morning with sickness or injury or pain, Lord. Lord, I just ask that on behalf of wherever we're at, that your spirit would minister to each of us the way that we need it this morning. Lord, I would ask that during this this time, these brief moments that we share together as we open up your word, that, that you would speak and that you would give us clarity of mind, ears that are open to hear it, that you would give us hearts that are open to receive what you have to say, Lord. I pray that you would give us hands and feet that would put into action what you call us to by the revealing of your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would use me this morning. 
Don't allow me to say anything that would take away from this position you've given me as pastor, that would take away anything from your word, Lord. Lord, I pray that what we, what we learn from your word would not just bring about information, trans- but bring about transformation in the lives of us gathered here. And that because we're here today, that our lives would be different tomorrow, that we, the way we would live would be different tomorrow. And that difference in our lives would point people to your son, Jesus. We'd be able to share with people about, about who he is. He is our savior. He is our king. He is our Lord. Lord, we trust in you in these moments. We ask that you would speak clearly so that we would hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I think about my childhood, specifically when I think about middle school, yeah, there's a few middle schoolers here. Do the rest of us remember middle school? Maybe you called it junior high. We're all trying to forget it, aren't we? Yeah? (laughs) When I think about middle school and all the you know, awkwardness that maybe I experienced, believe it or not, in middle school. I think about one of my uh, fears actually was being unpopular. Can you believe that? Anyone in middle school would be afraid of being unpopular. And if it wasn't any worse, like not being, but like when I grew up, one of the things I really just was worried about with being unpopular was actually not being able to have the right clothes. This, you know what I mean? And like the problem was, was my family was poor, so I was never going to have the right clothes. Like now I'm going to date myself by sharing this, but that's okay. Um, so like when I grew up, Jordash jeans were like the coolest things ever, right? Right? And like, and Jordash, yeah. And uh, don't judge me. <laughs> and like my family, like we could only afford Wranglers. And if it was a really, really tough year, it was like Rustler, if you know what those were. Basically, you might as well just wear burlap. That's how comfortable those are. You know what I mean? And like, I wanted so bad, I wanted so bad to have an awesome pair of sneakers, like either Michael Jordans, or if I couldn't have Jordans, I wanted Reebok pumps. Do you remember Reebok pumps? Man, those were awesome, right? And the best I ever got was LA gear. You know what I mean? So like, it was, it was never going to happen. I wanted Ray-Ban sunglasses or Oakley sunglasses. You know, I wanted the greatest sunglasses and the best I ever got was like the Dollar General brand of sunglasses, you know? And it's just the way it was. And um, man, when I was entering out of middle school into high school, I wanted to have the coolest sports car ever. And you know what we had? We had a baby blue station wagon with wood paneling on the sides. You know, nothing's greater than pulling up to a date in a, in a, you know, a wagon with wood paneling on the sides, right? Like, I literally had no chance. I think my parents did everything they could to make sure that if I had any popularity or any friends at all, it was going to have to be on my personality because it certainly wasn't going to come from anything I wore or drove. It was just the way it was. So, kids, if that's how you feel right now, you are in good company, and maybe, just maybe, there's hope for you. But I I was worried about being unpopular, and today, the reason I share this, because today we're actually going to talk about the most unpopular minor prophet there was, and he brought what I consider to be probably the most unpopular message, and his message, actually, I believe, in a church like ours, is probably still very unpopular. It is. What I want to call him is the not-so-famous Amos. 
the not-so-famous Amos. You know, today we actually think about him and we commemorate his legacy with little bags of cookies, which is pretty cool, right? But back then, nobody could stand him. Nobody liked him. He wasn't appreciated at all, this not-so-famous Amos. Amos was a shepherd. Amos was a shepherd, and he didn't actually start off being a prophet. And we see that right in the beginning of the book of Amos. In Amos 1.1, it says, The word of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. So we see he was a shepherd, and and wait, wait a little bit, about halfway in the book, towards the end of the book, Amos 7, he tells us another part about him. I was neither a prophet nor the son of the prophet. I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. I mean, this is who this guy was. He was just, he was just a normal guy. He was a blue-collar worker. He was a shepherd. He, he, was a, he took care of an orchard. That's, that's all he was. He didn't go to school to be a prophet. He didn't ask to be a prophet. He didn't grow up and say, boy, I hope someday I get to be a prophet. No, he was a shepherd. And he lived, out, he lived in, it tells us in verse 1, he lived in Tekoa. Now, Tekoa, where is that? Tekoa is on the south, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he was called, Amos was called to prophesy into the northern kingdom of Judah. So he was an outsider. He was called to go to a place where he didn't belong. His name, Amos itself, actually means burden bearer. Burden bearer, because he was called to carry a burden and told to preach someplace else. Now, if you don't know the story, I would encourage you to read First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But after Solomon died, his sons Jeroboam and Rehoboam, in about 930 BC, got into an argument, and this was prophesied, and they split, and the the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms: the southern kingdom called Judah, and the northern kingdom called Israel. And and uh, Amos was called as a shepherd out of Judah into Israel. So he's an outsider. He's called to a place that he doesn't belong. And his message, like I said, was unpopular. He was critical. I can't make this stuff up. First of all, the priest of Bethel. Bethel was one of the places that they, they, uh, the king of Israel indicated would be a holy place. Since the, Jerusalem, the most holy city, was in the southern kingdom, they had to come up with one on their own in the northern kingdom. And, and he called the priest in charge of that whole entire holy place. He, called, he told him that his wife was going to become a prostitute. Yeah, like talk about an, un, an, un, an uh, unwelcome message. The other, another message, this is crazy, but he called all the rich women of Israel fat cows. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not making this up. Read your Bible, right? Like this is, this is who he was. He was called as an outsider. Can you imagine being an outsider and bringing that message? It's like how to win friends and influence people. This is not the way to do it, right? But uh, it says that he was called before an earthquake. He saw a vision two years before an earthquake. Now, we believe this earthquake probably occurred on June 15th, 763 B.C. 763 B.C. So he was probably about 760, 761 B.C. Some people put him about 755 B.C. So anyway, 700 years, over 700 years before Jesus is when he was bringing this message to Israel. Now, where was he bringing this message to? As an outsider, he was bringing it to a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, at the same time that Hosea was bringing his message. And if you were here last week, you heard all about what was going on in Israel during the time of Hosea. So it was about the same time. They were contemporaries. And if just to remind you, and if you weren't here last week, Hosea and, and Amos were preaching to Israel during a time when prosperity was at an all-time high. Unprecedented peace 
unprecedented affluence. It was a great place. Dare I say, the state of the nation was greater than ever, right? That's what, he, that's what was going on. And everybody was happy. Everybody was on top of the world. Well, at least if you were the rich. If you were part of the ruling class, you were on top of the world. But if you weren't, then things actually weren't so great for you. And that was what God had a problem with. That's what God wanted to reveal about his heart through Amos. Now, if you go through in, in verse 2, he says, The Lord roars from Zion. This is a message coming all the way from Jerusalem, all the way from the holy city. God is roaring. Imagine if you were to look at a map all the way up to Israel. He is bringing this message. He thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and on top of Carmel withers. He's bringing this message of judgment. He says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not relent. Now, he's, he's precisely in this place bringing a message of judgment to Damascus. But th- what we see here is actually a phrase, for three sins, even four. And if you read the first and second chapter of Amos, he says this over and over again. This is a Hebraic sp- expression. For In Hebrew, for you to say three of something, you were actually giving like a complete plurality. So it's like you've really done a whole lot of sins. And then to say even four, you're like one-upping it, okay? So this is like a semantic expression that's basically saying you're really in trouble because you have done a lot of things wrong. And God has a lot of complaints. He's got a lot of grievances against you, right? And he says this to Damascus, but then he goes on and he brings it to seven different places. Seven different places where God is saying these are the problems with all of these places. And he ends with Judah and then he ends finally with Israel the place that Amos was called. And here was the problem. Here was the problem that Amos had to bring to the people that God had a heart to show them. He didn't object to the affluence. He didn't object to everything was okay. What he objected to was the fact that the greedy had become greedy. The rich had become greedy. They become unjust. They become selfish. They started to engage in illegal and immoral things. They would have slavery. They would overtax the poor. They would overtax the poor to the place where they couldn't afford to pay the taxes anymore, and then the rich would swoop in, and they would take their land and build greater and greater land. And the people that went into debt, they would throw them into prison. And that's not all, because once they were into prison, the stacks were still against them. Look what he says, and this is in Amos chapter 2. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. There it is. This is where he's going to them. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Not only, do they, not only do they trample and they sell the innocent, not only do they trample on the needy, they sell them for a pair of sandals, they trample on the heads of the poor. Fathers and sons are breaking his law by, by using the same woman, and yes, that means exactly what you think it means. This is what's going on. And Amos was upset because he was bringing this message from God. The legal system was manipulated against the poor. They had no way of breaking away from it. They were subjected to economic exploitation. And God was brokenhearted about this. And in in Amos chapter 5, he says these few things. God says these few things through Amos. 
There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. They levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. And though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. He says, you've turned justice. You've You've turned this thing where actually people are treated well, where all things are right, into bitterness. And he goes on, he says, you've cast righteousness, moral purity, being right with God, doing the things that God's called you to do. You've cast it to the ground. And God says, therefore, all of the good things you have, everything you think you're blessed with, all your prosperity, all of it, it's all going to go away. You're never going to enjoy any of it. He goes on and he says, he goes on and he says, for I know how many of your, are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. You see, there's something we need to understand as we understand Amos, but also understand God's message throughout all of Scripture. And these two words, I don't want you to miss this this morning. If you, if you forget everything else I say, which I kind of expect sometimes, don't forget these two things, okay? In the Old Testament, but certainly in the New, as we're going to see, the idea of justice and the idea of righteousness are inextricably combined, Okay? Sometimes, sometimes they, as a Bible translator translating from Hebrew into English, they will translate them uh, in different ways, both, both differently. Like when I was in seminary, one of the things we had to do was go through a passage and decide whether we would translate the two Hebrew words, either justice or righteousness, based upon what God was saying. They could be used in the same way because God sees them the same way. The word for righteousness is mishpat. Mishpat, and that literally means what you think it means. Righteousness, being right with God, having moral purity. Righteousness means having a right relationship with God and doing the right things that God has called us to do, right? And we all know that none of us are righteous apart from Jesus Christ, but he's called us to live righteous lives. Justice, though, is this other word. I mean, it's zedek or zedekah, and that's justice. And what justice means is it means that there is right relationships in everything, So right relationships human to human, our relationships together are right. Right relationships to God, all of creation, everything is well ordered, ordered. everything's in harmony. Everything that's wrong is set right. That is justice, and that you cannot have righteousness without justice, and you cannot have justice without righteousness. And if you think that you can pursue righteousness and be right with God because you're moral, and yet there is not justice in the world, or in your life, then you've missed what it means to love the Father and for the Father's heart to be honored. You with me? And this was the problem. This is the problem, is that the rich were doing something that, that God didn't like. His heart was crying out for justice, and they were doing something that God didn't like. They were saying they could, pers- they could pursue righteousness. They, they were saying they could be holy. They were saying they could go to church, and they could do all the things that God told them to do at church, but yet their lives and the way that their society went was despicable to God because people were being harmed, and those who were the least the, and the lost and the the lonely were being treated poorly, and God's heart was breaking. 
And he called out to Amos and he said, you've got to take this message. You've got to change their hearts. In Amos 5, verse 14, he says to them, God says to them through Amos, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. He says to them, please, turn your hearts, change the way. He goes on and he says, he says this to them in, in Amos chapter 8. He says, hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, here you go, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may go to the market and sell wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating dishonest scales. He's basically saying, you're even asking the question when you're in church, when you're celebrating church, you know, this, put it in our context, when you're going to church, you're even saying, okay, so when will this feast be over? When's this Sabbath gonna be over? Because we gotta get back to making money. Like, okay, I'm going to be here. I'm going to go through the motions. I'm going to check the God card for the week. But I need to get back to doing what I'm doing. And in the meantime, he's calling them out because he's saying, even then, the business that you go and do is crooked because you're ripping people off. You're skimping on the measure. You're boosting the price. You're, dishon- you're cheating people with dishonest scales. He's saying to people, even when you're going about your daily life, you're cheating people. And then he goes on and he says, you're buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. You're selling the scraps with the wheat. They're doing everything wrong. They're cheating people left and right. And God was saying, listen, you've got to change your heart. You've got to change your life and your, your country. Yeah, you think, you're, you think everything's great. You find peace and security and you're, you're rich and you're, you're feeling comfortable. You're making more money than ever. But the people that don't have anything are hurting. The people that don't have anything are struggling. Your, your court systems, your economic systems, everything is bent against the weak so that they just get weaker. They're being trampled on. And the Father's heart is saying no. If you want to you have a heart like mine, if you want to see what the heart of God is, righteousness and judge, justice must be pursued equally. That's what he said through Amos. And he tried to persuade them to change. Just like he tried to persuade them through Hosea. The way that God tried to persuade the people through, through Amos was actually he threatened them by bringing um, natural disasters. Natural disasters to the land. In chapter 4, it actually outlines these natural disasters. In chapter 4, verse 6, he tells them, I'm gonna, I brought famine. In chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he says, I brought drought to the land. In verse 9, he says, I brought crop failure. So that even, you know, the way that you would make money would fail. I brought plagues in chapter 10. I think that might do it for me. And then he brought urban disasters into the land. And all of these different ways that God allowed things to happen, all of these natural disasters, he was trying to get their attention. But you probably guess what happened, right? You think they listened? You think they turned their lives? No, they didn't. They continued to oppress. They continued to hurt the poor. They continued to exploit people. They continued to turn their backs on the widow, on the orphan, 
on the least of these. And as they pursued all of the things that they thought they should get, all of the goodness, all of the security, all of the money, all of the prosperity, they pursued all that and then they went to church. They pursued all that and they went to church and they thought that their righteousness would be enough when they weren't even doing that good. We know that from Hosea, but they thought that going through these motions was gonna be enough because, hey, we're being blessed, right? We're being blessed. Look at how everything's so good. And yet God was saying, no, you don't understand my heart at all. You don't understand what it means to follow me at all. You see, what Amos says, what we see about the Father's heart in Amos, and this is why it's an unpopular message, I know that, is that the Father's heart is for justice. It is. Not only is the Father's heart for righteousness, for purity, for us to pursue his law. And even after Jesus, that we're supposed to be righteous in Jesus and then grow in our righteousness through the process of sanctification, looking more like him every single day, God's heart is still for righteousness, for the oppressed. Every time there is a wrong in the world where any of us would say, man, that is wrong, somebody should do something about it. Do you understand that God's heart is saying, yes, you are right. My heart is to set every wrong to right. Do you understand that? And you understand that God's heart is that his people, his people in the time of Amos and his people in today, that we are actually called by him to take part in setting those things right. That's what God's heart is. God knew that the people of Israel didn't love him with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength because they didn't show their neighbor love. He knew that, and he wanted to let the people through Amos know that his heart is for justice. And listen, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This isn't just, oh, that's the Old Testament pastor. That's the book of Amos. Nobody ever reads that book anyway right? No, this is very clear. This is who God showed himself. This is what he showed his heart to be through Jesus, too. It's how he did it time and time again. You know, in Matthew 25, I'm going to read it here for a second. In Matthew 25, we see one of what I think is one of the most uh, important messages from Jesus' teaching that's often missed in our churches today. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31, if you want to read with me. I won't have it up on the screen. Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left and the king will come to those on his right and say, come who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom will prepared for you since creation was here. Here it is, verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And then the king will reply, truly I will tell you. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Actually, Jesus goes on and says that the goats, the other ones, ones nobody wants to be, that would be separated and cast into judgment 
are those that did not do any of those things. And they asked the same question. When did we see all these things? And to paraphrase in, in the words of God through Amos, to paraphrase what Jesus says, he says, all of the times that you overlooked those who were the least and instead pursued righteousness without justice, you missed it. You missed me. That's what Jesus said. One time, it's not all. One time Jesus, earlier in the book of Matthew, is going along and he, he sees this guy named Matthew, who's known as Levi at the time. And Levi was a, was a tax collector, which was not somebody that anybody liked either. He was very unpopular amongst his people and he called him to be his disciple. And so Levi, Matthew, gets all of his friends together and they go over to Matthew's house and they go for a party and they're sitting down and the Pharisees, you know, the righteous people, walk along and they see Jesus and they're like, man, and they ask his followers, Jesus' followers, they're like, why does your master eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he hang out with all the people that every good church person knows you don't hang out with those people, right? And he tells them, it's, the hel- it's not the healthy that need a physician, it's the sick, right? He tells them, he tells them that in, in verse chapter Uh, chapter uh, 25, it says, hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the, not, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Once again, this is revealing the father's heart. Do you understand how mean it was for Jesus to say this at this time? He's telling the righteous people, he's telling the Pharisees, the ones that are the experts, go and learn. He's telling them they don't know anything. And he says, what I want you to go and learn is a message that he brought through Amos' contemporary, Hosea. In Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy. I desire justice, not sacrifice. In other words, I don't care if you're just righteous. I, I desire that you are righteous and just to everyone in all the places. And you've gotten so blinded by pursuing only righteousness that you look down your noses at the people people that need the love of God the most. That's what Jesus said to them. And they didn't like it. Obviously, they didn't like it. They killed him for it. I desire your love for everyone. You define your religion by your worship is actually what Jesus was saying. I I define your heart by the way that it's aligned to mine. Can I push this a little bit more? Because I know you're all real comfortable with this. This wasn't just in Old Testament Amos. This wasn't in just in the New Testament. This, you understand, this was the basis of the church itself. This is the reason why the church grew. In one of my favorite books, The Rise of Christianity, I love the subtitle, how an obscure, marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world within a few centuries. That's a mouthful, right? But it's a, it, Rodney Stark looked at how did this small group of people, these people that were Jews that broke away from the Jewish faith, how did they become this movement that's become the most powerful force in the world? He wanted to figure it out. So he looked at the church and all the things that the church did in the first hundred years after Christ returned to the throne. And what he figured out was a few things. He figured out that the way that believers acted in the social networks of their lives made a huge impact. They just, the people of God were known to go everywhere and everywhere they went. Every person that they came in contact with, the love that they had in interpersonal relationships was something that impacted the world around them. 
When people were friends with a Christian, their lives got better. And the average believers made a huge difference. It wasn't about the pastor. It was about people like you in your lives, in your workplaces. The way that they interacted with people made a huge difference. But not only that, they cared for widows. They cared for orphans. And they cared for the sick. And it was something that was not seen prior to the Christians. Do you understand that plagues, natural disasters, and devastations from riots or wars were regular occurrences in the cities of Rome? That's something that happened after Jesus went to, went to, went to the throne. And what distinguished Christians was their response to these calamities. One time there was a plague in, in, the, in the, about the 4th century, there was a plague in Rome, and it was so bad that history tells us up to 5,000 people a day were dying. Yeah, I'm not kidding. All right? And you know what all of the pagans did? They said, there's a sickness here. We're out. And they fled the cities, and they fled as far as they could away from everything, leaving their family, leaving their friends, leaving everyone behind because they didn't want to die. You know what the people that worship Jesus did? They stayed. They stayed, and despite having any knowledge of medical science, they provided food and water and shelter for the sick, and they actually increased the number of people that survived the plagues because they stayed. And this isn't something I've made up. We actually have writings. We have writings from an emperor during this time named Julian the Apostate. You like that name? Julian the Apostate, writing to the priests of the pagan religion, the pagan religion that worshipped the Roman gods, specifically the Roman god Jupiter, the gods that didn't say that you were created in the image of them, the gods that said that you were created to serve them. And therefore, anyone who worshipped these pagan gods thought that people were exposable and disposable. And he's writing and he's saying, there's something wrong because all of our people are leaving and all the Christians are staying. And hold on a second. Remember, he's the apostate. All the people in Rome are starting to like Jesus more than the Roman gods. There's a problem. We have a letter from him during this time, during this plague. And this is what he says. He says that the Christian growth was caused by, this direct quotes from his letter, moral character. And he says, even if it's pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. He goes on, he says, I think when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, that's the Roman priests, The impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians, the impious Galileans observed this and they devoted themselves to benevolence. See, he's trying to figure out, okay, why would they serve these people? It's not because they love God, it must be because they're trying to get them on their side, right? That's what he's saying, but that's not at all what happened. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid aid from us. He's flipping out. He's saying these these impious Galileans, these, these Jesus followers, they're taking care of everyone. They're taking care of the sick. They're taking care of the orphan. What's going on? We're going to lose the people to the Roman gods. They're all going to follow Jesus because of the way these people are. And this wasn't just in this case. Do you understand? If I could just go on further, do you understand that Christians in the first century overturned, I've shared this before, overturned the way that women were treated? You understand that? In in the Roman time in the first and second century, it was normal for a man to cheat on his wife, to cheat on his wife and to sleep with slaves. 
and to sleep with prostitutes at the temples. It was completely normal. It was okay. It was considered to be a normal part of life. Yeah, but then something happened. People started following Jesus, and men started to realize, no, actually what Jesus calls us to is to be, to be true to our wives and our wives alone. You know what else happened when men were allowed to sleep with slaves and allowed to sleep with prostitutes? There was a lot of babies being born that, didn't want, that people didn't want. And you know what was normal in Rome at that time? Infanticide. What that means is after the baby was born, they would take the baby, I'm sorry to be graphic, they would take the baby out of the city and they would set it on the trash heap. And they would say, we didn't kill it. If it dies by exposure or if it dies by wild animal, that's the, that's the wish of the gods, you know? But we're just going to leave it abandoned. And that was perfectly acceptable in this time, except for the people who knew the heart of God, except for people who were given their life to Jesus. And you know what the Christians did in the first century? Something no one ever thought was normal. We all think it is, but they didn't think it was normal at that time. They would go out to the trash heaps daily, and they would take the babies, and they would bring them back into their homes and raise them as their own. That's what the people of Jesus' followers did. You see, to follow the heart of God, to love Jesus with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, your strength, also meant that you served. And where there was wrong in this world, followers of God always knew that the heart of God was to make the wrong right. Our first century father, Tertullian, if you've never heard of him, says this. He says, why do people think that Jesus is so great? This is the second century AD. It's our care of the helpless. Our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. One of the most important insistence is that God loves the world and that he's created humanity and he desires for those who love him to love others. What caused, the, what caused our faith to grow? What caused our movement to grow? What caused the world to pause and say, what is up with these people who follow Jesus? Listen to me. Was it their theology? Was it proper doctrine? Was it people trained in apologetic conversations? No. It was none of that. It was people that understood the Father's heart for justice, just like Amos preached about. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in his book, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself being polluted from the world. There you have it again. Righteousness and justice together. It's what it means to follow the heart of God. And so I just ask you to search your heart this morning. And not just give yourself the Jesus answer. Ask these questions to yourself. As we see God's heart, do you view homelessness with contempt or compassion? Is your intention, concern, and affection for people influenced by factors of race, ethnicity, citizenship, or net worth? Do you ignore the needs of the poor? Are you more interested in satisfying your own needs or excuses than helping someone with the necessities of life, or excesses, I'm sorry? Do you feel bad for the oppressed, the poor, the orphan, and the sex trafficked, or do you act compassionately to stop injustice 
for the disadvantaged? Is giving money or physical aid to the homeless shelters and food banks in our community a burden or a blessing? Listen, I know when I write these things, this isn't making anybody happy. You know? This is stuff we've got to grapple with, though. This is what it means to follow, to follow the, God's heart. God's heart is a heart for justice. Amos, Amos spelled it out very clearly. God has a heart for justice, and if there is an injustice in the world, it should be fixed, and it should be engaged by the people who love God and are surrendered to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And the solution in Amos is amazing. The solution in Amos had nothing to do with government control or redistribution of wealth by the government. That's not the solution that Amos gives. And I'm not about to be political, I'm going to be biblical, all right? You with me? This is what Amos is very clear, that it's not going to be anything that we rely on the systems of the world that are corrupt to fix. The only way that justice will happen in this world is if the people of God adopt the heart of their Father and they become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ and we engage the world with our own flesh and blood and incarnate the one who came and incarnated himself to the world and we get our hands dirty and we love those that are the least, the lost, and lonely. So when they look at us and they look at the people of Palmyra Grace, they would say, just like they did to Tertullian, they would say, oh my goodness, look how they love one another. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. That is what it's going to take. Amos' message, his unpopular message was from God. My heart is for justice. And so you must turn your life. You must turn your heart. You must change. And you must adopt my heart and live my heart out into the world. My heart, I want my heart to become like yours. I want you to pursue justice for me. That's what he said. He says this in Amos chapter 5. He says, this is what the Lord says. Seek me and live. Do not seek all these other places that you've, you've created to worship. Don't seek Bethel or Gilgal or Bathsheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Don't seek these other places. Seek me, he says. I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I would not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. He says, don't just worship me. Don't just come to me and say that you're doing all the right things. He says instead in verse 24, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. He says it's not about just going through the Christian motions. It's actually about allowing the love of God to pour out and roll on like a river and the righteousness of God to be like a never-ending stream. That's what he says. (coughs) Folks, do you understand that injusticeness and brokenness are the scars and the fractures of the fall of mankind and the brokenness of this earth. That's why they're here. They were never God's plan. They're the rotting fruit born from the seed of sin. That's why they exist. (coughs) But do you understand that mercy and justice and everything being made right and those who are the least being lifted up by the love of God 
are the ripple effects of the redemption of Jesus Christ born in each and every one of our hearts. That's what God says time and time again. And we're not just called to give money. And we're not just called to feel bad. We're called to live just like Amos called the Old Testament. We're called to live just like Jesus called his disciples. We're called to live just like the first century Christians. We're called to engage this world for justice. And our engagement in our lives for him pours out out of the overflow of his love. See, if we understand the Father's heart, and if we've experienced his love and redemption, then we should be so filled up with him that the overflow of that is us looking at the places where the poor, where the widow, where the orphan, where there's racial injustice, where all of the things that we look at this world as we watch the evening news and we say, somebody should do something about that. The reality is, is that for God's heart, he would say that somebody is you. That somebody is me. Not only are we supposed to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ, we will never stop reaching people with the message of how he saved them from their their sin. But we should be in this world, a church, that people look at us and they say, wow, we have never seen people serve the least, the lost, and lonely the way that that church does. What is up with them? You know, one of my favorite songs that came out a few years ago is this song by Matthew West, maybe you know it, called Do Something. And I think he nailed it as I close this morning. These are the lyrics he wrote. He wrote, I woke up this morning and I saw a world full of trouble. And I thought, how'd we ever get so far down? And how is the world ever going to turn around? And so I turned my eyes to heaven and I thought, God, why don't you do something? I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me, and I shook my fist at heaven. And I said, God, why don't you do something? And God said, I did. I created you. I created you. You see... What we see in Amos about a father who loves and redeems the world is that we also see a father who's heartbroken when a nation seeks prosperity and peace and security. And in the meantime, there's injustice. There's pain. There's suffering. There's people. And we've decided as God's people to give the care for those people over to systems that are broken. We've decided to give them the care of those people over to systems that are corrupt by the way that the rest of the world is corrupt because of sin that has corrupted everything. And we've, we've relegated ourselves to sitting back and shaking our heads and saying, man, that's terrible. Maybe somebody should do something about that. See, if we want to live out the Father's heart, if we want to understand the Father's heart, We must understand that God's heart's for justice and it's up to the people of God to stand in the gap and speak for those who have no voice. And maybe, just maybe, those around us would say, look at those people. Look how they love one another. And we get to tell them about Jesus, the one who modeled for us what it meant to give everything. So those who had nothing, would come to know everything. That's the Father's heart. Let's pray.
Father, we love you. We thank you for revealing your heart to us. We know that, Father, I know that a lot of us, even myself, writing this message this week, we love the messages that focus on what you've done for us, and sometimes it's hard for us to focus on what you called us to do for others, Lord, but I just ask that we would be a church that understood, as you've made it clear to us, that time and time again, we as your people are actually called to both, to pursue righteousness and pursue that our lives would be conformed to your image in every way, and that each and every day we'd look more and more like Jesus and less and less like our old selves, caught up in the slavery of sin and darkness and brokenness, but also, Lord, that you've called us into this world as we wait for you to return and to make all things new and to restore all things that are broken to life, that we are called even now to embody what that world will look like because the kingdom of God is embodied in us. And when we see struggle, when we see pain, when we see poverty, when we see sickness, when we see widows, when we see orphans, when we see racism, when we see uh, all of the things in our world that are injustices, that we would be the voice for the voiceless. Lord, let us be a church that holds both and holds that tension well and lives them both out, modeling ourselves after your son Jesus living like the early church did, pointing people to you all the time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.